This episode is brought to you by Ever. Ever is the first truly scalable form of clean baseload power. Ever's technology harvests heat from deep within the earth to be used to generate electricity or for commercial heating applications. The company's closed-loop system is a key factor that differentiates Ever from traditional geothermal. The Everlight demonstration project is a full-scale prototype of the Ever Technology Suite, which is located near Rocky Mountain House, Alberta. As of February 2020, the site is fully operational with third-party validated success. From that success, Ever's first commercial project was recently announced in the Yukon, Canada. And Ever is currently developing another in Germany, with many more in the pipeline for Alberta and around the world. Ever's mission is to enable the delivery of competitive clean energy on demand at scale. Learn more about Ever at eavor.com. If we take these actions, we're going to get some fast results, and we still have a chance to keep the planet safe. It's going to take speed, the need for speed. This is the new mantra, and we've got to learn how to do this even in the time of pandemic. That means we have to focus on the strategies that are fast in terms of climate reductions, but also good for health and good for jobs. And uh, to clean up the air is, uh, it scores high on both of those points. The skies may look clearer these days, but don't get too excited. Levels of smog and other short-lived climate pollutants, remember HFCs, are still high and climbing. The good news? There's a long-standing record of international cooperation to get these harmful pollutants in check. The challenge? Finding the political will to pretty much eliminate them entirely. In this episode, we speak to legendary environmental litigator, professor, author, and advocate, Derwood Zelke, about why we should care about these non-CO2 greenhouse gases and what's being done to curb them. This is Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, your host, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. That is the sound of Lincoln Boulevard, a thoroughfare on the west side of Los Angeles. The fact that you can hear more cars whizzing by is actually a testament to how much less traffic there is in this notoriously gridlocked city. Normally, cars would be at a near standstill on Lincoln as commuters inch their way home. Reduced traffic is one of the most visible effects of the coronavirus pandemic on everyday life. Highways in LA and other cities across the US are virtually empty. As a result, many cities have been enjoying cleaner air, bluer skies, and prettier views. But don't be fooled. First of all, there's carbon dioxide, which we can't really see or feel, but we know is a major driver of climate change. CO2 emissions will be down this year amid coronavirus, but they're expected to spike once economies pick back up. But put that aside for now, because carbon dioxide isn't the only problem. There are a bunch of other pollutants out there that dirty our air, make people sick, affect the ozone layer, and warm the atmosphere. These short-lived climate pollutants include black carbon or soot, methane, hydrofluorocarbons or HFCs, and tropospheric ozone, what we generally think of as smog in cities. 
These are the most important contributors to the man-made global greenhouse gas effect after carbon dioxide. So we're going to talk about these short-lived climate pollutants on this episode with Derwood Zelke, founder and president of the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development in Washington, D.C. and Paris, where he focuses on fast mitigation strategies to protect the climate. He's previously taught at various law schools, including at Yale, Duke's Law School in Brussels, and American University's Washington College of Law. He's also received numerous awards for his leadership on the Montreal Protocol and his efforts to enact the Kigali Amendment to phase down HFCs. This discussion is timely. A new NPR investigation published just this week found that while car traffic across the country is down about 40%, the amount of ground-level ozone, or smog, has barely decreased. NPR's analysis found that in the vast majority of places, smog pollution decreased by 15% or less. That means fixing the country's pollution issues isn't as simple as getting cars off the road. In this interview, I'm joined by my co-host Shane Skelton, a Republican, partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific and former energy advisor to Paul Ryan, as well as Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat, partner at the firm Boundary Stone Partners and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under President Obama. We turn to our interview with Derwood Zelke about short-lived pollutants, the pandemic, international agreements, and more after this message. This episode is brought to you with support from the nonprofit environmental forum, EarthX. Last month, tens of thousands of people from all around the world tuned in to EarthX 2020, a series of virtual conferences, awards, film screenings, networking events, and more. Well, EarthX isn't done yet. On Tuesday, June 9th to Thursday, June 11th, be sure to tune in to EarthX Ocean, a virtual event on protecting underwater life support systems. The event features an all-star lineup of speakers, including National Geographic explorers, coral reef restoration experts, innovators in plastic pollution cleanup, and more. Register now at earthx.org slash earthxocean. So to set the scene, Derwood, could you explain why we care about these short-lived climate pollutants? I feel like we hear a lot about carbon emissions, carbon dioxide, CO2, uh, but there are also these other pollutants that are really playing a major role in driving the climate crisis that maybe aren't as front of mind or part of the dialogue these days. So explain what these are and why we should care about them. So first of all, let's let's be clear what we're talking about. It's uh, the non-CO2 climate forcers, which include the black carbon soot that you see coming out of a dirty diesel bus, car, truck. Uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, it includes methane, includes tropospheric ozone, which is your ground-level smog, and it includes hydrofluorocarbon refrigerants, which are um, super, all of these are super greenhouse pollutants. The black carbon, of course, is an aerosol. It's not a well-mixed greenhouse gas. And, uh, and some of these also have very profound health impacts, the black carbon and the tropospheric ozone. They kill uh, uh, about 8.8 million people a year around the world, half from indoor air pollution, half from outdoor, and uh, they destroy a lot of crops. So, so th that's, the, that's the package. They're not CO2. They're short-lived climate pollutants on the non-CO2 side. The reason we care is... One, uh, there's a health impact I just mentioned and uh, an impact on crops. 
but on the climate itself, they're about 40 to 45 percent of historic warming. So you look back and you think, okay, that's, that's pretty significant. It's almost half. But when you look forward, they're even more important. When you look at how much warming can we avoid in the future, let's say up till 2050 as our first point, you can see that cutting the short-lived climate pollutants as a whole will give you at least twice as much avoided warming as cutting CO2. Now, this doesn't mean you don't have to cut CO2. Of course you do. You have to do both of these. But think of them as uh, as two different types of uh, ships. So the first one would be CO2. It's like a super tanker. You turn it off, but it drifts for a very long time. It's very hard to stop. And And you can see this happening right now with the concentrations of CO2. The CO2 stays in the atmosphere 25 to 40% for 500 years or more. And the full decay curve is longer than radioactive uranium to get it out of the system. And then you think of the short-lived climate pollutants. You turn them off, and it's like stopping a speedboat. It's dead in the water as soon as you turn the engine on. So you need both of these. Uh, maybe you can think of it also like a relay race where the short-lived climate pollutants sprint out there keep us in the game while we're trying to win the net zero or probably better to talk about real zero carbon emissions at 2050. So speed is their, their, their hallmark. They're the fast mitigation. Do you ever feel like CO2 gets all the attention and you're like, hey, what about our short-lived climate pollutants well, over here? Is there well, competition? Of course I feel that way. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Is there, is yeah. there a campaign to get SCLPs out there? <laughs> well, there, there should be, and you're the kind of reporter who might help us get it there. I mean, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're not fighting CO2. We're trying to get in position to help CO2. So what could happen if we're not careful? We'll do this incredible effort to get to zero carbon emissions at 2050, and we won't see a discernible uh, slowing down of warming at that point. And so this, uh, this is not going to be good for the politics of this. If you do the short-lived climate pollutants in parallel, then you show the fast avoided warming. Now, the other reason this is so important is because if you don't slow the short-lived climate pollutants and the near-term warming, you're going to get the positive feedbacks taking over. This is where the Earth begins to warm itself. And as soon as that happens, then you start passing the tipping points for irreversible climate damage. So uh, I'll illustrate with the Arctic summer sea ice. This is a great white shield that currently sends a tremendous amount of heat back to space safely, but it's melting and it could all melt within 10 years. Yeah, we're not sure. All, all these things are future probabilities, but the empirical evidence shows fast melt rate and we're already down to about 1% of the multi-year strong ice and the fragile first-year ice um, will soon follow. When we lose it all, and again, it could be within 10 years, we'll add the equivalent of a trillion tons of CO2. But we can't take an extra trillion tons on top of the 2.4 trillion we put in since 1750. 
when the Industrial Revolution started. I mean, this is going to be a tremendous um, hit that will then collapse the permafrost. When you do that, you release other climate pollutants, methane, N2O, and CO2. And you start this wicked cascade that, uh, that we're not going to be able to stop without, um, we're probably not going to be able to stop at all until we restabilize. You paint a very rosy picture <laughs> there. So I want to put our discussion about short-lived climate pollutants into the current context of coronavirus. People are looking out their windows now and seeing cleaner air. They're seeing fewer cars on the road. But we've already seen some studies showing that, in fact, the pollution may have just moved to other areas because, you know, we're still using big trucks and we're still making things. And so what we think of as, as smog may have gone from some areas, but maybe not others. NPR actually just published an in-depth report on this, and it was a sobering look at just how the empty highways we're seeing are not enough to tackle these kinds of emissions. So, Derwood, I'm wondering how you think about these short-lived pollutants in the context of coronavirus. Is this an opportunity to reduce them, or is it really just highlighting how much more work there is to do? Yes, uh, absolutely. So ground-level ozone, called tropospheric ozone, is a major component of urban smog. I grew up in Los Angeles. I remember days when we couldn't go out for recess because we had smog alerts. Very dangerous for your health and very bad for climate. So yes, uh, this is one of the pollutants that we work on. It, it, it comes from the uh, reaction with sunlight and uh, precursors that are volatile organic compounds, the VOCs, including methane. So you're correct in, in pointing out that while we've stopped a lot of automobile traffic, we have trucks who are bringing us our food and our toilet paper. We have ships still coming into the, the port of Los Angeles, San Pedro, San Francisco, and, and so on, delivering our goods. And they're, they're causing pollution, like carbon pollution, methane pollution. We have our farms. They are a source of methane. We have our landfills that we are putting food waste in, and that turns into methane emissions. We also have um, our wastewater treatment plants and they produce methane. So we have a lot of the sources of these air pollutants are still there. I mean, it's, it's wonderful to see that as we stop moving around so much, we can begin to see clean air. It's brilliant. And I'm hoping that this will give people the appetite to demand of their elected officials that we keep the air clean and get the rest of it cleaned as well. It's not just... Um, from the automobile traffic, although that's about half of the pollution uh, from the climate side in California, but uh, but there's more as well. Yeah, it really goes to show that we can't just stop using certain types of technologies. We actually have to clean up the products we use kind of wholesale or else you just kind of reduce a little bit here, maybe shift it over there, but it doesn't quite solve the problem inherently. Well, you're absolutely right again. And, and of course, when you go outside of California, you go to the other states in the U.S., you go to Mexico, Canada, and then you go to the world, we all have to work in concert to reduce these air pollutants. And if we do, I mean, the, the brilliant part is if we do, we can cut the rate of climate change in half very, very quickly. And the rate of climate change in the Arctic, which is 
the regulator for so much of our weather, we can cut that by two thirds. So, you know, we have our handle on very important levers to slow down climate change. And I think the pandemic is showing us evidence that if we take action, we get a fast response in the climate system. And that's, uh, that's very encouraging for us to see because, you know, people want a visible proof that their sacrifices and their changes in behavior are producing results. But it's still, it's not a, an individual action that's going to save the climate. It's important. We need to do it. We should all be vegetarians. We should all walk, uh, ride our bicycles and uh, our scooters and roller skate and, uh, and so on. But uh, we have to get the big sources of pollution, the chemical companies, the oil and gas industry, steel industry, cement, aluminum. These are the big polluters. We've got to get them under control. And they have not yet taken their responsibility seriously enough. So we've got a long way to go. But we know from this uh, natural experiment we're going through that if we take these actions, we're going to get some fast results. And we still have a chance to keep the planet safe. It's going to take speed, the need for speed. This is the new mantra. And we've got to learn how to do this even in the time of pandemic. That means we have to focus on the strategies that are fast in terms of climate reductions, but also good for health and good for jobs. And uh, clean up the air is, uh, high, scores high on both of those points. And to be clear, we're cleaning up the air locally where we live here on the ground. But what we'll get into in a moment is the Montreal Protocol and other efforts to clean up the air way above our heads in the stratosphere and, and the ozone and trying to improve the chemicals there and the greenhouse gases those chemicals also produce. Correct. There's different layers to this. Absolutely. So the, the work of the Montreal Protocol, the, the best treaty for the environment we've ever created and the best for climate protection focuses on the stratosphere. So this is where the well-mixed greenhouse gases end up. And, and in this case, we're talking about HFC refrigerants, now under the jurisdiction of the Montreal Protocol. And uh, we're taking them out of the system. We're, thanks to the Kigali Amendment, we're eliminating warming from one of the six main greenhouse gases. Think about that. The single treaty is taken out of the system one of the six main greenhouse gases. And we still have to implement the Kigali Amendment that is the one that said we have to take out the HFCs, but we're well on the way to doing that. California's uh, ahead of the curve. They're helping educate other states, uh, including other countries. And, uh, and, and we will take out this huge piece of future warming, up to a half a degree Celsius of future warming by the end of the century, just from this one action by the Montreal Protocol. Now, half a degree Celsius may not sound like much, but remember, we've warmed the planet one degree Celsius so far. We're seeing some pretty serious consequences. And we're, within 10 years, going to hit 1.5 degrees Celsius. The scientists are telling us that's the maximum we can tolerate before we start losing control of the climate system. So half a degree is a big damn deal. And then in addition, if we make our cooling equipment super efficient, our air conditioners, for example, that we need more and more of in a warming world, we can double and maybe even triple 
at mid-century, the climate benefits of the Kigali Amendment. So it's a, it's a pretty encouraging piece of climate policy that is working. These are dark times. I mean, everybody I talk to is a little depressed, a little concerned uh, through their uh, sheltering in place, through the, the difficult political moment of uh, the U.S. And, and other parts of the world. And we need to show examples that work, that uh, concerted action by the international community, propelled by great scientists, you know, that we can, we can do heroic things. Well, that is indeed one of the more uplifting messages I've heard lately. Uh, it's definitely more uplifting than your dire warnings from earlier on, <laughs> Derwood. Um, so before moving on, and I want to bring you in, Shane, with a question, um, just a quick refresher for our audience. The Montreal Protocol, which we're talking about here, was finalized in 1987, and it was created to phase out the production and consumption of substances that deplete the ozone layer. So the stratospheric ozone and not the ozone we talked about here on the ground. Uh, the primary concern there were chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, which were used in all kinds of spray cans for hairspray and bug spray, etc. So the Montreal Protocol phased out CFCs, but that led to the widespread use of hydrofluorocarbons, or HFCs, which don't deplete the ozone layer, but are a super climate pollutant. So the world sort of fixed one problem and created another, or accentuated another. So that's why I know world leaders and experts like you, Derwood, were pushing for the creation of the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol so that it addressed both ozone and climate issues. So... Just a quick bit of context there uh, before I move on. But uh, Shane, over to you. Derwood, considering the, the urgency of the situation and considering all the attention that is on climate change, both domestically and internationally at the moment, uh, I know that, you know, obviously the Kigali Amendment addresses HFCs and, and, and there's a lot of work in Congress right now for a phase down. But why do you think with all the attention on climate and based on you know, your experience in, in working in the environmental movement in several different positions, is there so little attention on short-lived climate pollutants compared to CO2? That's, uh, that's a very important question, and I can give you some insight perhaps, but, uh, but I'm not sure that I, that I can tell you precisely why that's the case. The 1.5 paper that came out of the IPCC a special report uh, in October 2018 makes it clear for the very first time through the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is our, you know, the gold standard for the science, that their special report said you cannot stay below 1.5 degrees of uh, warming above pre-industrial times unless you do three things. You have to do CO2. Um, mitigation aggressively through efficiency and through clean energy. You have to do the non-CO2 short-lived climate pollutants aggressively, and you have to learn how to take a lot of CO2 out of the atmosphere, up to a trillion tons. So that was the first time that the formal apparatus of the UN system acknowledged how important the short-lived climate pollutants were. Um, why has it taken so long? I mean, the CO2 can take up, um, you know, a lot of oxygen. I mean, it can take up uh, a lot of uh, attention because it deserves it. It's hugely important. And we know that we need to move to the, the real zero at uh, 2050. We've looked at the other uh, pollutants for a long time in terms of air pollution, but we haven't 
focused on their climate potential until recently. Now, under Secretary of, then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, the Obama administration set up with um, the United Nations Environment Program and several other governments, the Climate and Clean Air Coalition to reduce short-lived climate pollutants. God, I can't remember, six or seven years ago. And so that, that was another big step forward. We have now 65 countries and equal number of NGOs, all the development banks in that group too, the CCAC. So we're, we're making progress. We've managed uh, to get President Macron and France interested in this, and he made it a piece of his G7 summit in Biarritz, where he invited us to both be one of his advisors for his One Planet Summit process, and then to make a presentation to heads of government on the need for speed at the Biarritz uh, G7. President Trump, of course, uh, boycotted that particular well, can uh, I ask about that uh, on the U.S. side, Derwood? Because I, I hear that there's international collaboration, but would the U.S. be interested in, in acting on these short-lived air pollutions under the Trump administration? I believe there's policy action that needs to happen to ratify Montreal Protocol right now, if I'm not mistaken. Um, what is the prognosis for that? Well, uh, there is, um, look, we will ratify the Kigali Amendment eventually. Whether it happens, this administration, there are only there's six months left um, until the election, less than six months. So I don't think much is going to happen in that period. And we're, of course, totally focused on the pandemic and the recovery that, that we need to stabilize the economy and, and to stabilize the health problem. So I don't see any prospects in the, in the next six months. And, um, and who knows how the election will turn out. But certainly if it's a Joe Biden administration, there'll be a fast uh, ratification uh, because the industry wants this as well as the NGOs. There's no one opposing ratifying the Kigali Amendment. So th that will happen. And the, admin um, the even the current administration under Trump has been benign. You know, they have not attacked this. This has been, uh, this has a good Republican pedigree. The Montreal Protocol started under Ronald Reagan and Maggie Thatcher in the UK and has always been supported by the U.S. industry. It's good for jobs. It's good for competitiveness. And so it, it's, uh, it's a pretty secure agreement. Um, but, but states are moving as well. And so there is legislation in California that says we will take aggressive action to reduce the short-term climate. So many other states will look to California as will uh, different countries given the size, power, and sophistication of California. Derwood, this is Brandon. I want to make sure I heard you right. You think we need to get to zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, right? Real zero. Well, here, here's what I meant to say. Who knows what the hell I said. But um, the, we, we have a goal you're seeing formulated for COP26 that was supposed to be in the UK this year has been postponed. Six months probably end up being at least a year. And the dominant focus there is to have net zero emissions of CO2 at 2050. There's a club of countries who've made these pledges, and it's a good goal for the world to have. However, if you don't win the short-term battle by bringing in your 
reinforcements from the short-lived climate pollutants, it's not going to matter by the time you get to 2050 because the feedbacks will have taken over. The tipping points will be tipping and, and, and we won't be able to win. Makes sense. Hey, Shane, uh, do you agree with that? Uh, I mean, because I don't understand the scientific aspect at all, I agree with everything Derwin tells me about short-lived climate pollution. So, so, so Shane, is, you're on board with uh, zero net by 2050 and, and the short-lived uh, goals as well? Well, interestingly, Brandon, um, short-lived climate pollutants are less, for whatever reason, politically controversial. I'm not saying they're not politically controversial, but when you look at you know HFC legislation on the Hill – uh, it's got a lot of support as opposed to some CO2 legislation. And then also yeah. um, Congressman Matt Gates, who I don't think anyone considers to be a liberal, you know, sort of climate defender, is co-sponsoring a bill on all short-lived climate pollutants with, uh, I believe, um, Congressman Peters from the San Diego area. So, yeah, I do think it's less controversial. And, and I do think people understand the urgency. And because it's not been as much of a political football, it has a lot higher likelihood of, of being addressed, which it sounds like... Uh, needs to be done sooner than later. Yeah, right. But Shane, uh, zero by 2050, where are you on that one? If it's possible, let's do it, right? I mean, if it's possible to do, let's do it. I think I'm the one on this show who called for uh, a clean energy standard to be adopted uh, sooner than later. My view has always been, um, let's push as hard as we can to do as much as we can. And if we can't do it and we don't achieve those goals, then fine, but we might as well set out to achieve them. Yeah. I mean, why do you think that um, Matt Gates and Republicans are getting on board with HFCs, whereas there's more reluctance on the on the CO2 side? Shane and then Derbit, I'd love your thoughts on it. But Shane, just to finish your thoughts, why is that? I think most fair minded individuals, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, understand that we have a problem and that problem is in need of a solution. I just think CO2, for whatever reason, has become so politically controversial, and it might have a lot to do with, you know, traditional role of fossil fuel industry and and Republican politics, especially. But it just seems like when you talk about reducing carbon emissions, even in a way that industry is fully supportive of, there's sort of a knee jerk reaction. And we saw some of this, I won't won't opine on this for long, but in North Dakota, um, a a utility wants to shut down their coal plant, they're not being forced, there's no regulation, they want to shut it down because they can more cheaply uh, deploy wind and storage. And the governor reflexively said, that's a terrible idea. And I don't know, you know why it's a terrible idea for a utility to save money and reduce emissions, but there is a knee-jerk reaction to anything that reduces CO2. They're just, we haven't formulated that same political volatility, or, or I'm sorry, political vitriol when it comes to short-lived climate pollutants. And so, you know, let's strike now before it becomes controversial. Well, I, I think Jane you know, explained this well, that we have um, industry support. You know, the U.S. industry, chemical industry in particular, has been in the forefront of formulating superior alternatives for the CFCs and now the HFCs. So the U.S. industry knows how to comply with the Montreal Protocol, phase down the HFCs, and continue to make money. Indeed, you know, they've found a very graceful way of working with the Montreal Protocol to time their innovation to what the treaty requirements demand. And I think that's been uh, a very, very successful uh, interaction. Sometimes my friends at Greenpeace will complain to me that the Montreal Protocol looks like a conspiracy with industry. My response is, pretty damn fortuitous conspiracy, because it works brilliantly 
to do more to solve climate change and protect stratospheric ozone than anything we have ever created. So please, let's pay attention to this. You know, the, when you go back to the, the battle with CO2, well, the fossil fuel industry is big. It is powerful. It has an incredible history. It has money, uh, although it's uh, hemorrhaging right now uh, and, and increasingly in debt. But it, it's big and powerful. So they're, they're going to fight to protect their advantage for as long as they can. You see some, some uh, good developments where some of the oil companies are pledging to get to net zero at least at 2050. You see some good movement on the uh, clean energy side. You know, it's, but it's, it's been slow. The, the other, you know, the air pollution, you don't want to be a, a senator or a congressman or a president who says, I'm all for air pollution. You know, it's like, I'm, yeah, so you, you've, got, uh, you've got a big constituency to support clean air. And let's hope it's bigger now that we have demonstrated that we can clean up the air by slowing down our, our activities. Um, I guess one of my last questions to Derwood is, is the future of international negotiations. Um, taking a bit of a broader look here, we are in an era where governments are intervening in economies as we cope with the recovery from the coronavirus. You know, when things are going well, it's hard to get deals done and collaborate internationally. And now we're seeing some countries turn inward as they cope with this crisis and, and think of their recoveries and maybe even move some of their you know, manufacturing and industry domestically. And so in that broader context, I'm curious what you think the future of international climate negotiations will be. You know, you described how you've been involved in a lot of them. Does it feel like that international collaboration and, and that kind of world order is, is losing steam right now? Is that under threat in this era of, of other more acute crises? Well, first, I've, I've, I've been a critic for some time about the UN climate negotiations. There are way, way too slow, and they've produced very little in the 30 years that we've been doing them. And we have, after 30 years, a set of voluntary agreements that this is not um, sufficient to solve climate change. And now, if we're not careful, the UN system is going to say, well, now, um, as we're at COP26, give us another 30 years until 2050, and then we'll, um, we'll get rid of our CO2 emissions. That's not going to cut it. I think it's much better to disaggregate the climate problem, the constituent pieces by source, sink, or sector, and solve those particular pieces. That's what the Montreal Protocol has done. Took fluorinated gases, it learned how to solve that piece, it got stronger and stronger as it got more and more confident that it knew how to solve the piece. And then uh, it amended the treaty, it uh, adjusted it, it strengthened it over and over throughout its more than 30-year history. We're beginning to do that with ICAO for civil aviation. We're doing it with IMO for shipping. We've tried, not very successfully yet, with uh, the forest part and, and can do much better on that as well. So I think you have to disaggregate. And you have to take the pieces. You've got to set up a governance approach that learns how to solve each of those pieces. Now, then the second part, when we look at the pandemic and the recovery, I mean, we're, we're in the U.S. at 33 million people claiming unemployment for the first time now. We are going to see 25% unemployment soon, maybe higher than the Depression. We've already shoveled out uh, up to $9 trillion when you count the Fed. Uh, interventions here. 
And, and we're not done by a long shot in either stabilizing the health pandemic or in stabilizing the, the economy. So we're going to end up spending a lot of money. And this is not just the, the U.S., but this is the IMF. It's the World Bank. It's uh, China. It's the world is going to have to figure out. So what it means, I think, is that if we're going to solve the second problem looming in the wings, which is the climate crisis, as we solve the health crisis, we have to find a way to bring the two together. And that means looking at um, not what the pandemic recovery can do for climate, but what can climate solutions do for pandemic recovery and uh, economic recovery. And that comes back to air pollution and uh, jobs. So let's, let's look at those two as a package, solve health and climate by doing air pollution together. And then let's look at where the jobs are. So we need something like a civilian conservation corps under the, the New Deal of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt to put people back to work. And one brilliant way to start would be with capping the legacy wells in the oil and gas industry that are currently leaking methane one of the most potent greenhouse gases, one of the super pollutants. So let's, um, let's figure out how to pay oil and gas workers uh, who can no longer drill because the price of oil is, in the, is so low, but they could do good work by capping the legacy wells and slowing the, the methane release. So I think you've got to put the two together. Well, I guess my final observation on this is that the, the UNFCCC, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, where 197 countries try to negotiate, is no longer going to be the way forward, if it ever was. We're going to have to do this through smaller groups, the major economies forums, uh, the G20. You know, there are 18 countries, when you count the European Union, responsible for about 85% of climate emissions. You can actually sit them all down in one room and they can negotiate. So I think you're going to move from this a universal membership negotiating table, which is just too big, to the smaller table where the, the leaders, and this is going to start with um, uh, President Macron. It's going to, I hope it's going to start with the next U.S. president, whoever it is. Uh, it's got to be President Xi in China. It's got to be Prime Minister Modi in India. Uh, President Kagame in Rwanda, the best leader in Africa, and uh, maybe Abe in Japan, uh, Jacinda uh, Ardern in uh, New Zealand, brilliant uh, prime minister. You know, these are the ones who need to come together to take charge, and and I think it's going to happen. I just hope it happens before it's too late. Before we wrap up, um, you know, you just articulated that. Um, these international climate dialogues need to go from sort of broad-based discussions into more acute actions. I'm curious, you know, having had the benefit of, of being able to have a drink with you and sort of talk about your career, you started out as a litigator in the 1980s in Alaska for the Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund. I'm guessing being a litigator sort of helped uh, your your sense of urgency rather than, you know, starting out as a diplomat. But is there anything that's happened in your career domestically or internationally that, that drove your passion for, I need answers now rather than, you know, dialogue or let's, let's solve this problem. Is there any defining moment in your career that you can point to as making this all worthwhile or, or what drives your sort of ideology? Uh, well, it's, uh, 
I mean, some of it is just that I'm an impatient son of a bitch. I mean, <laughs> I, um, I need action to, to live. And when you look at climate, you see bureaucratic stasis. You see entrenched interests that, that have blocked here and there. And, and that's just, it's unacceptable. So I've got a band of pirates working with me. And, you know, we're, um, we're learning how to, how to sail uh, through these waters. And, and we're bringing that same sense of urgency from litigation uh, into negotiations. And we're trying to pick off, you know, the, the pieces we can capture and, uh, and move ahead from there and show people that victory is possible. You know, once you learn what the Montreal Protocol has done, you have to say, why does this treaty not do even more? And why do we not copy this treaty to do the next piece for uh, the aluminum sector, for the steel sector, for um, cement sector? Let, let's, let's learn here from our successes. So I think from litigation, I learned the, 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 the benefits and the, the thrill of victory. And I'd like to carry that over and have tried to do that in the in the negotiations as well, in the diplomatic realm. I'm imagining what your getting drinks was like and telling stories of of policy <laughs> battles and That's scars, awesome. I'm sure, that linger. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could tell you I could tell you a lot of other stories, um, but we'd have to do it over drinks. well one day that'll have to be allowed again um we really do appreciate you coming on the podcast um no drinks at this point in time unless well i can't see you so who who knows what anyone's doing shane (laughs) Shane may be sipping at quarter to noon yeah um but seriously derwood zelke really appreciate you coming on the podcast my pleasure keep up the good work stay safe and that is our episode we hope you learned something new And we would also love it if you could leave us a review. Uh, It really means a lot. It helps us reach more people and helps us keep bringing you some fresh new content. So thanks for that. Also, if you would like to reach out to us on Twitter, we're at poly underscore climate. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So feel free to shoot us a note, send us your feedback. We really love getting that. So thanks again, and until soon.